Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. We're in a fluid, fast-moving situation. As we speak on Friday morning, only five Premier League fixtures survive this weekend. A total of nine matches have been called off in the past week. But the league do not want to institute a circuit break before Christmas. There are so many angles in football's response to the pandemic and we'll return to the subject later. For now though, let's focus on the games that are on. Leeds are at home to Arsenal and are in dire need of a result. The fans are keeping faith in great numbers. But Richard, I suppose the question is, are they marching on together into the Championship? Yeah, of course. Look, in, injuries aside, the form hasn't been good enough. Not been good enough defensively. We all know about the high-octane pressing style, but you know, in certain games, I feel like you do have to shut up shop. And Manchester City game was, was case in point. Look, 16 points after 17 games, 16th in the table, goal difference of minus 15. You know, it's not looking great, but what Leeds do have on their side is the fact that there are at least three sides who are worse than them and possibly Watford as well, just above the relegation zone. So you do have that cushion, I would say. And of course, when their key players come back, you do expect a rise up the table. We already saw the instant impact when Patrick Manford came back and scored in, in injury time to, to salvage a draw. But the impact for me is, you know, sometimes these, these big results and big losses can have a, a long-lasting effect on confidence, on morale, regardless of opponent. And Manchester City did open him up at, at, at will, at, at a cancer. You know, look, it was the, the first time since they've lost by seven goal margins since 1934. You know, it's these kind of records which do play in your mind and, 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 and they do take its toll. You know, Bielsa has a, has a job to do to, to lift spirits now. Uh, these games are not going to determine whether they stay up or go down, you know. and But the pattern of the big games where they do like to go man for man, that I've seen them op- op- being opened up at, at, at times. You know, maybe it gets a 2-0, 3-0, you see how the game's going. Do you just shut up shop and just salvage some confidence by by losing the game amicably rather than getting thrashed? You know, we've seen it against Manchester United on two occasions where they went man for man at Old Trafford and got, and got thrashed. On the flip side, you know, they went to Man City last season, went down to 10 men and played fantastically. So... You know, it's pretty, they've proven that they can do it. They can, you know, shut up shop and, and be difficult to play against and, and break down. But, um, yeah, as you say, the, these big results can have an impact on morale. And it's really up to Bielsa now to, to galvanise his squad and make sure that it's not a thing where they spiral out of control. Yeah. Well, Glenn, we go back to the days when Leeds United were the damned United, don't we? You know, Don Revy and Sock Tags and, and all that sort of uh, malarkey. It's a strange one, isn't it? the pretensions of being a big club. If you look at Leeds, great history, fantastic support, and they've got 
some strategic financial backing from you know, San Francisco 49ers, for instance. But at the moment, they're relatively low budget. And as Richard alluded to there, that squad is really stretched by injury. Does that mean that this whole pretension about being a big club is counterproductive? Well, it's one of the great discussions in, in sport and journalism, isn't it? Football, I've written many pieces like this. What is a big club? Is it the history? Is it the stadium? Is it the fans? Is it the amount of money you've got? I think to a large extent, a lot of it depends on what generation you are in terms of perception. There's lots of fans who believe their club is bigger than others perceive it. And that's uh, outside perceptions often based on age. So, so we think Leeds are a big club because when we were growing up, Leeds were winning lots of stuff. And there's an argument that they've, you know, they've still got a tremendous uh, support base, got a decent sized ground, that it is a big club. But my kids don't think Leeds are a big club because they've spent most of the time outside the Premier League. They've just arrived, as far as they're concerned. I don't know if my dad thought Leeds was a big club because until the 60s, they hadn't really done very much. So, you know, you've got generations that, yeah. There'd, be, there'd still be a few people around who will think Huddersfield are a big club because they were the top team in the 30s. Um, probably not many. Uh, Wolves, you know, Wolves arguably the biggest club in the 50s. They'll be for a few brief brief years. You've got, you know, Blackburn would have looked a big, big club in terms of financially they were for a few years. There may be some newcomers to the Premier League, you know, probably from abroad who might think Leicester are a big club. So it's perceptually, are Manchester City a big club? They are at the moment because they've got obviously massive finances. They're winning lots of stuff. When we were kids, they were a decent-sized club, but they didn't win very many things. So it is a big question. Because, but what it does, of course, I mean, it does create a sense of history, a sense of expectation. So if you go to Nottingham Forest, I think they're probably taking them down now, but at one point, everywhere you move, they're pictures of the Cluffy era, which is a huge sort of weight on the players and the staff coming afterwards. Same with Leeds. I mean, all those photographs of the Revy era and the stands and stuff... That is, a, that is a huge amount to live up to. And, I mean, we had that with Liverpool, yeah, with the quest for the championship. Although that generation that grew up with Liverpool always win the title, then go decades without winning the title. So it's difficult. I mean, I'm going to Ipswich v Sunderland Saturday. Hopefully it's on. Yeah, Sunderland have got a claim, a very strong claim, to be a proper big club. And one of the most famous clubs, you know, back in the very start of the game, one of the first really big clubs, the Bank of England club. At one point, Ipswich went for a spell in the seventies, where they were one of the biggest clubs in the land, winning European trophies, won the FA Cup, came second in the league. Now it's it's a big match in the third division, where you've got what you might argue much smaller teams, you know, higher up the league, or at least you know they they would argue. So it's difficult, but in terms of what it means, it does create expectation. It has its advantages, and you've got a big groundswell support. You're more likely to attract outside investment because it's got potential. But it's the old, you know, sleeping, you know, sleeping dog, sleeping giant. Some of the giants have been asleep for quite a long time, and getting them to wake up and stay waking up. I mean, as you say, Leeds have um, they haven't invested a lot of money in that squad, considering uh, you know the sort of the potential at the, the city, you know, one city club, big city with financial industries and stuff like that. So there's potential there. But as Richard says, they basically need to stay up and then keep building. Yeah, I suppose one the the person you know, metaphorically grabbing the club on the shoulder and trying to shake him and wake him up is Marcello Bielsa. It took 568 games for one of his teams to concede seven goals as they did in midweek. He came out afterwards, and you know, in that style of his, which is almost like you know everyone's favourite footballing eccentric uncle, and he basically said, "Look, I'm not unsackable." That's presumably a statement of the obvious, isn't it, Rich? Of course, I don't, I don't think anyone's safe, especially in this day and age. And it does offer a sense of perspective. You know, Bielsa's gone there in the last four years and he's, he's done a fantastic job there, you know, to bring them up from the championship and, you know, playing great football. We all know about the high-octane style. But the thing that concerned me, especially during midweek, is that, OK, your, your team, your team's get, you know, you're getting a hiding. There are gaps appearing, well, acres of space, spaces appearing all over the pitch. And it was a big concern. And sometimes when when you see the games going a certain way, do, do, do you have to shut up shop? Do you have to just try and get men behind the ball? And, you know, you know you're going to lose the game, but a 3-0 three, a defeat is, you know, is much, much better than, than a 7-0 defeat in terms of, say, morale, goal difference and, and things like that. So... Maybe that's something that he has to look at moving forward. Is that okay? Fantastic. We, you know, we all know about your style. It's great, but is it a case of staying true to it to kind of you know to, to to spite your face kind of thing? Because 
as, as you've seen, you know, once the goal starts shipping, it's very difficult to kind of claw that back. You know, the goal difference of minus 15 now, which which isn't great. And yeah, it, look, it's it's just one of those things where sometimes you just have to adapt. It's, especially as I mentioned, with the injuries that they've got there, they don't have the personnel to you know, always, you know, first 11 or, you know, first 14 to really carry out exactly what he wants as proven. Because last season, when they went to Man City, went down to 10 men and they played absolutely fantastic. So it just goes to show that, you know, the injuries do do play its part. But maybe he does need to adapt slightly in these kind of games just to, just to shut up shop and just try and consolidate. Yeah. Yeah, he's famously emotionally driven, Glenn. You know, and we hear of his style and his demands burning out players. Looking at him midweek, I wondered, what about the impact on himself? Because he's not, you know, he'll be very hard on himself, won't he? Yeah, he will. My management is tough. Yeah, I mean, you've written a very good book on it, Mike. I mean, yeah, it is a very tough you know, environment. There is no one, yeah, as I remember talking to manager saying, there's no one else you, you know you really turn to. Your relationship with chairman is very important because, you know, your, your job is to pick up the players, but who picks you up? I mean, it really comes down to the chairman to pick you up. And that, that can be quite difficult if you haven't got you know, the, the right relationship in place. Yeah, and probably more difficult with language issues as well. Yeah, conceding seven. I remember doing an interview with Ashley Ward when he was at Barnsley years ago and they'd lost 6-0. Barnsley's season in the Premier League. And, yeah, they'd lost 6-0 at West Ham, I think. And yeah, I was sort of saying, well, yeah, yeah these, these things happen. You know, teams. He says, they, they shouldn't happen to professional footballers. You know, professional level, 6-0 was a real beating and this was 7-0. You know, those sort of things shouldn't happen to professional teams. And, uh, yeah. All part players have been beaten six, seven, eight, nine, minute, nil. It's completely different when it's your job, and it does have an impact. I think it's going to be quite difficult. You, you, you might get a reaction from it, but um, and it, it does obviously has an impact on Bielsa. I mean, if not beyond the bounds that he might decide, you know, it's not working for me, and I leave. I mean, he's an unpredictable guy. I mean, he's got a lot of credit in the bank at Leeds. There's no pressure at the moment, you know, from the crowd for him to go. Which are, there's no pressure on the um, board either because yeah, obviously having got them finally got them up and they've had so many dubious owners over the years. I think they're quite happy with who they've got at the moment. So that will help. So there's no pressure to sack the chairman and also sack the manager. So it's a question coming through it. But yeah, I mean, Phillips and Bamford, big losses. You take two or three key players out of most of the teams in the Premier League and they're going to be damaged. Look at West Ham, they've lost half their defence. Chelsea without Lukaku don't look quite the same. There's not many teams have the sort of resources that you can lose Kevin De Bruyne for half a season. It doesn't really notice. Yeah, well, Leeds is a team that can't afford to be without Calvin Phillips, for one. Rich, are they playing Arsenal at Allen Road at the wrong time? I say that because, you know, Mikel Arteta has actually, I thought, crossed the Rubicon of it. He actually imposed his managerial authority on Aubameyang. He's obviously got buying from a young squad. It's been a bit up and down for Arsenal, but I would imagine they'd be in dangerous mood, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, as we know, momentum's a big thing in football and Arsenal seem to be getting that slowly, but picking up some some good results. I think it's interesting you mentioned the arteta Bamiyang situation because, you know, I guess as a manager, you need to instil discipline in the dressing room, of course, and he does have a lot of young players who are... Who are pretty much driving the driving the squad now. So, and, and you know, in recent times, you can you can say that as the as the senior players who have who have let the let the side down. There was ill discipline, not just Abamian, but the likes of Shaka in the past as well. So, and and that that kind of ill discipline can seep through the squad. And you know, there had been instances where some of the younger players were showing ill discipline, and you know, things like being late and things like that. So. I think the fact that Arteta nipped it in the bud is is a sign of strength. I also think that the fact that Aubameyang's form has not been the same since he got his new contract does give Arteta a bit of credit and, and credence in that. Because look, if Aubameyang was playing well and and you know scoring scoring every game, people would be clamouring for him to stay. But the fact that his form has kind of declined a bit probably say well let's move him on and let, let's let's try and build the squad around these young players so I think the fact that Arsenal beat West Ham so convincingly midweek does give them that that momentum to, to build and to say look are we going into a new era but as we know with Arsenal inconsistency is, is only ever around the corner so 
Yeah, they, they seem to be in the up. Obviously, in fourth is, is great for them. But um, yeah, as I say, they need to build in this momentum now. And I think a good win against Leeds, regardless of the form they're in, will help to, to move that forward. And people will look at Arteta and say, yeah, we trust the process. Until next week, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would say is, yeah, I mean, their waveform is very poor. Yeah, seven points in eight games. So in, in that respect for Leeds, if you're going to play Arsenal, playing them at home, just give them a chance to maybe bounce back. Yeah. What do you think about... Young players, it's almost a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it, Glenn? You know, you've got players like Saka and Smith-Rowe, Martinelli. They've got, I think, is it 10 of the 23 Premier League goals between them. Can they sustain their level? Because at that age, sort of under 21, 22, is fatigue, both mental and physical, to be expected over a long season? I thought probably there's also the fearlessness of youth though, and sort of the sense that the, the less awareness of of, foul, of the consequence of failure. I mean, and young they may be, but I mean, Saka in particular has already experienced you know quite a, quite a lot in his career. Yeah, you know the, the stuff in the summer. I mean, it partly depends on results. I mean, if you keep doing well, then clearly mentally you're going to be in quite a good place. You know, winning always helps. So less less pressure if you're winning. And I mean, there are one or two senior players there. Yeah, you, know, you hope you feel could have an influence. You have people like Tierney, Lacazette, who's, who's come back and looking quite good. So it's it's a it's one of those cases where I, I think. The other thing to be taken account, of course, in this strange season is this bubble life and this uncertainty and whether that impacts more on older players with families and so on. The younger players, of course, are going to be a bit more restricted in what they can do, perhaps. So and that's very hard to tell because we haven't been here before, you know, certainly not in the last, before the last couple of years. But there will be odd bits. I mean, Smith Rowe's had a few weeks off. You know, well, not off, but a, few, a couple of weeks where he's not been a team because of you know, minor injuries. I mean... There'd be bits and pieces of that. I think um, Ramsdale's become a big figure for them very quickly. He's got that fearlessness, that sort of sense of driving. I can see him be quite, quite a big character in the dressing room already. Uh, I watched quite a lot of him when he was at Wimbledon when he was um, just coming through on loan. And even then, he was like, you know, lonely, big, big player for them in the season, basically kept them up. He only played half a season, was voted player of the season by the fans. And, you know, in, fact, in fact, I think he's voted into their team of the decade, you know, half a season. <laughs> yeah, and even, even then, you could see... His, his impact, yeah, you know, as a player in the dressing room, relationship with fans. I mean, so yeah, you know, those sort of characters. I mean, so it's not necessarily about age. It's about how much sort of your your own personal character and what how resilient you are as a player. And um, most young players have had knockbacks. Yeah, you know, Ramsdale was released at a young, a young age and so on. So it doesn't necessarily mean just because they're young they're going to have those bits. But it's a case really, I guess, for. Arteta and the people around him keep an eye on them. If someone does start to look like it's getting a bit much, take them out of the firing line for, for two or three weeks. You know, you'd hope they have the depth to do that, and that's obviously yet to be seen. Yeah, Newcastle are at home to Manchester City on Sunday, Rich. Then they've got Manchester United. Then two key away games at Everton and Southampton. By the time the lifeboat of the transfer window turns up, will they be sort of slipping beneath the waves? I think looking at that run, as you say, the the next two fixtures are obviously daunting. But as you say, the two fixtures that you mentioned after that, that you know, they're the ones where okay, they they can pick up points. I think I think for all of Newcastle's ailments and and poor form this season, the fact that they that they're not adrift yet does give them that lifeline. And I feel that okay, everyone's looking to January as this kind of tipping point, turning point, or however you want to look at it. You know, uh, is everything going to transform? Then, but I think that, as I say, the fact that, as you say, three points of safety. I know Burnley have two games in hand, but the fact that they're not adrift does give them hope. But yeah, January will be interesting. We've seen the news today that uh, they've uh, employed a consultant to help with their their transfer window. Nick Hammond, as you say, decent track record. I guess at Celtic and and at Reading, albeit kind of you know, fifteen or so years ago. And you know they're trying to you know really change the structure of the of the management structure. You're know, looking for director of football and, and things like that as well. So I'm a bit concerned that maybe that's not been finalised yet because I guess if you're looking to recruit players, you know what's the structure going to be? You know who's leading the negotiations, etc. That that could be problematic. But um, look, I think they just need to you know as you say try and if they can shut up shop for the next four games, I know it'll be difficult because their defence is, is awful and just try and stay within touch and distance, then if they can get the players that they need in January, then there's something for them to build on. But of course, other problems come after that in terms of will they gel in time? Has the manager got enough in him to 
deal with the potential big personalities that are coming in as well. So it is it's, it's so many things up in the air. I guess as a Newcastle fan, you're excited to see who you're linked with, who's going to come in, but also deeply concerned that the defence doesn't seem to be getting any better, you know, this, despite this managerial change. Yeah, the word coming out of the club is that they'll be looking for um, character in the new recruits, you know, rather than a bunch of people who are probably turning up for an early pension plan. The sort of players that they'll be looking for, Glenn, Kieran Trippier, is he the sort of expensive, immediate impact sort of player they need? You know, they've also, be, also been linked because, you know, as Rich said, they need to basically replace the entire defence. James Tarkovsky, Nathan Ake have been mentioned. You know, why on earth Tarkovsky would be allowed to leave when they're in their situation is beyond me. I can't see them. I can't see Bernie letting Tarkovsky go unless they get an absolutely astonishing sum of money thrown at them. Which, in which case, you know, they've got new owners who don't seem to be putting a lot into the club. But when you consider the consequences financially of getting relegated, you know, selling one of your better defenders to an immediate rival would could potentially be a very very expensive decision. So I can't see them getting him. Trippier would look a good signing if he's prepared to go from Atletico Madrid to to team heading towards the championship. You just ask why he's prepared to do that, perhaps. But he would be a good sign if they can get, get him. I mean, obviously, yeah, absolutely high-quality player, good personality, excellent guy to have around. Yeah, and, and you need to get a couple of those players coming in because that starts to drive other people coming in. Someone else says, oh, I don't know, Chipper's gone there. You know, if I go there as well and someone else, then we've got a chance of staying up. You know, so you do need to get the first couple over the line because that does get other people going. In their favour, most of the teams at the bottom six or seven aren't picking up many points at the moment. I mean, you look at that Premier League table and there's an awful lot of red L's on it at the bottom half. So they're not getting cut adrift. I mean, they're not even bottom, obviously. There's a little bit of a gap to lead. I mean, you know, six points, but, you know, it's only a couple of wins, really. I mean, there's another 20 odd games, 20 plus games to go. So it's not inconceivable that we're a little bit of transformation. And I guess... Yeah, I don't know whether this was in the consideration with uh, when they appointed Eddie Howe, but he has got a team at the championship in the past. You know, you may be looking at a situation where you go down and come back. I mean, they went down twice under Mike Ashley and came straight back both times comfortably. So it's, it's not inconceivable. It's obviously not in the, the plan. And um, there'll be the championship will be even, even harder than usual. I mean, when a big club goes down, everyone wants to play against them. But you can imagine what it's going to be like if Newcastle go down game after game. It's basically going to be 46 cup finals, as they say. But again, if they went down and started winning games, you can imagine their home form, home form would suddenly be very impressive indeed. Uh, so we'll see. It's certainly going to be a very interesting subplot to the Premier League to follow to the end of the season. It certainly will be. When they were at Liverpool on Thursday night, Richard, Newcastle were durable. Obviously, you know, they lost... You know, with that exclamation mark of a goal from uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. When you look at it, though, durability won't be enough against Manchester City, will it? As Leeds found out. No, no. As you can say, you, you can have that durability and that, you know, good mentality and, you know, you know, fighting for the shirt, as, as the fans would say. But um, as you say, you do need that quality as well. Newcastle do have quality going forward. And I think, you know, under Eddie Howe, we've seen the likes of you know so Maximan, we've seen the likes of Callum Wilson, you know, take up the armband and, and really assert himself and take responsibility. And they're, they're really the shining lights who are, who are going to drive the club forward. But as, as we say, you know, you do need quality in midfield and at the back, and just making far too many mistakes. And as you say, we've again, even even on Thursday night, you know, I think it was Liverpool's first or second goal when uh, John Joe Shelby made a back pass, it seems to happen every single game. If not a mistake, they're giving away a penalty. And I think before the Liverpool game, they're giving away a penalty every 2.7 games, which, you know, if you're looking at giving yourself a chance, <laughs> giving the opposition a free chance from 12 yards just isn't going to help. So, yeah, the kind, that kind of, kind of ill-discipline and lack of concentration seems to be a big issue. And you say Liverpool punished it, and you'd expect Manchester City, in the form they're in, to punish that emphatically as well. Mm. Virgil van Dijk, Fabinho and Curtis Jones all tested positive before that Newcastle game, Glenn, which obviously, you know, gives you some sort of caution before looking too eagerly forward to their game on Sunday at Spurs. In terms of the way that Liverpool are playing at the moment, there is an irresistibility about them, you know, probably exemplified by, by Mo Salah, who scored 
or assisted in 15 successive games now. Yeah, it was fascinating. Last night I was double screening the two games on BT. The um, and Everton at Chelsea set out to play pretty much exactly the way Newcastle set out to play at Liverpool. It, you, you're watching two identical matches unfolding. And the difference really was that Liverpool were that much better than Chelsea. I mean, Everton dug in and were dogged and yeah, they, they got a good, terrific goal on a set piece. Um, but Newcastle obviously scored as well. So in that respect, the similarities. But Liverpool just had that much more creativity and spark around the box where Chelsea looked like they weren't quite at, at it yeah, creatively. I mean, obviously Pickford made some good, decent saves, to be fair. And yeah, they've got... I mean, Salah is obviously in sensational form this year and has been for two or three years. I mean, that, that cross with the, with the outside of his foot he played the other night, yeah. He's been brilliant and the passing, there's, you know, they've got a bit more creativity in the midfield than they, than they maybe did in the past and also they've got, you know, people pushing on from the back who are also adding that creativity. So they've got quite a lot of outlets. I mean, you know, standing in Newcastle basically trying yeah, block up the middle, push them around the outside. But then you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold and um, yeah, Robertson on, on the outside. So yeah, obviously they are coming in from outside. So it is difficult. There's not an obvious way to sort of... Yeah, the same with Manchester City. There, there are so many ways in which they can get round you, which they can get through you. It becomes difficult to try and pick everybody up. I mean, the City the other night, it was, you know, it basically a lot of it was Rodri pushing forward. Yeah, into into the spaces that were being left because everyone else has been picked up. So it's, yeah, with these with these teams, it's so hard because it's not just a case like it was in Villa last year of stopping Grealish. It's not like a case of say, yeah, you know, Palace this year if you can sit on Gallagher. You, you, you simply aren't enough players to, to mark all the threats of the opposition because one to one, most your players are going to be up against people who are better than, than you. Which so that's going to create. As soon as they beat one man, you've got a problem. So it's very difficult. And yeah, Liverpool look at the moment like they might push City further than Chelsea are. What about Spurs, Richard? I'm not sure there'll be any danger they'll be undercooked, but actually it's what, December the 5th was their last game. We all know about winning games in hand, but if they do win all their three, they're only three points behind Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh... It's funny you say that, isn't it? Because I guess, you know, when Conte took over, it was all, it was all crisis, it was all doom and gloom. But I think Conte, what, what he's done, he's, he's had that instant impact. I'm not just on about, you know, banning ketchup and things like that, but in terms of, you know, the, the, the discipline and, and getting Tottenham set up how he likes to play. The, the likes of, of, of Skip and Hoybier have, have been impressive. The likes of Lucas Moura have come to the fore as well. And, OK, although obviously, you know, COVID and force break, you know, it may just give Tottenham a little chance to regroup, a, a, a little break, which you know, looks like it's coming into fore anyway for, with everyone else. But that little break can just give them that chance to to regroup and, and, and then take the charge again forward. And, you know, with all the games coming thick and fast, it, it could be a blessing in, in disguise. As, as you mentioned, you know, kind of being undercooked. I mean, is any side you don't want to be undercooked against at the moment? It is Liverpool with, with their kind of juggernaut at the moment. But if there's, any, if there's anyone who, who's equipped to stop them as a manager anyway, it, it is Antonio Conte. So... Early days, of course, but we do seem to be seeing improvements in, in, in some players. I mean, still a concern about Harry Kane, of course, you know, get, um, scoring. But, you know, the likes of Son are playing well. The, the left-back, Reguilon, has, has, has improved and is becoming a threat on the left-hand side as well. In addition to the other players that I've mentioned. So, if he can get them firing, get them solid, it won't be the full-goal conclusion that I think everyone else is thinking. And as you say, the game's in hand. If they win those, then <laughs> from, from going from almost mid-table to, to being right in it. I don't think they'll have enough, though, personally, but the fact that they are still there and thereabouts is, is credit to the manager. You wonder, I mean, Liverpool would have played three times since Spurs last played. They, they might be a bit leggy by comparison. Yeah, could happen, couldn't it? What about Chelsea, Glenn? They're at Wolves. Well, schedule would be at Wolves. Tuchel described that draw against Everton as a freak result, but the direction of travel is pretty poor, isn't it? Yes, they look like the early season sort of ominous rolling over teams has gone, some of which may be connected to Lukaku being out of the team because he was, he was, you know, scoring and also getting involved to the extent lots of stuff was happening around him. I think they miss him. I mean, you know, to the extent they miss Werner's movement, I'm not necessarily he's finishing, but his movement creates chances for others. I mean, Mount's obviously come back and he's looking good for him. Not quite so much happening 
from the full backs at the moment. Chilwell's obviously a bit of a, a bit of a loss, and James has stopped scoring them. Admittedly, you can't really rely on your right back to provide all your goals all season. Um, <laughs> it's more freakish if he is scoring than if he's not. Uh, it just looks at the moment that they're just slightly off the pace, which happens to teams. I mean, there are very few teams who go all season, you know, knocking over the opposition. You do get these periods when you get off the pace, and the question is, of course, how quickly can they turn it round? I mean, was it two wins in five? That's not the form to be chasing teams like Manchester City because the you're looking at 100 points to win the league these days. You can't afford to drop too many points. So they're just looking just, just very slightly off the pace as if they could do a little bit of a breather. Of course, at the moment, though, when you do get a break, it's because your training ground is shut and half your players are sick, so you can't get the training ground and fix things, which is one of the issues. You're just you know, people kicking their heels at home. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would say with the Chelsea situation is I do agree with the direction of travel, but... I mean, last night, I mean, they had so many chances. I think they had about six, you know, guilt-edge chances where, you know, they, they scored those. We're, we're talking about a different situation this this morning. So they are still able to create, but the issue is, is, is the defence at the moment, isn't it? I guess, you know, there's a lot hanging over them in terms of contractual situations with, with a number of their, their key personnel. But that kind of, as you mentioned, that imperious, ominous nature isn't there at the moment. And as you say, it's only going to get tougher for them. So I think if they get their contractual situation sorted out, there'll be a bit more clarity. That may help. And uh, as you've mentioned as well, the loss of Chilwell is, is, is in terms of how their, their balance moving forward, is, is proving to be a big miss as well. Uh, in addition to obviously Kante also. So, um, yeah, I think, as you say, directional travel is not great. But as, as I say, if they took their chances yesterday, we're looking at a, a big route and, and we're saying Chelsea are back. So it's those fine margins, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose it wasn't a coincidence that when you think about it, Lukaku, Werner, Havertz, Hudson-Odoi and actually Chilwell are all tested positive for COVID. Well, actually, Havertz was awaiting his test result. And so even with a squad as as, as huge as Chelsea's, it, it does leave a, a gap when you have that amount of uh, absentees. What do you make of Wolves, Glenn? They're sort of quietly tucked in. No one really talks about them this season, do they? He's done a good job there, hasn't he? They're very hard to score against. They've got a very good defensive record. I mean, they've obviously you know, replaced one very good goalkeeper with another one who looks pretty good. And they've become you know, very organised, very solid. Yeah, considering they're not really producing that much up front in terms of goals. Um, I mean, obviously, Jimenez is still coming back a little bit. Uh, Traore is still flashing to deceive. And yet, they're, they're, was it Romain Saiz with a great finish? A wonderful pass from uh, Ruben Neves the other night. So, they, they, I guess if you're not conceding any goals, one's enough. And uh, they're, they're creeping up the table, yeah, as you say, virtually unnoticed in that that very busy sort of upper upper middle half of the table where one win takes you up four places, one defeat drops you down three places. Uh, so it doesn't take, you know, you, don't, you haven't got to put together too many results to start flying up the table. Uh, but yeah, they become um, very well organised. I mean, initially at the start of the season, you're sort of wondering how this is going to work out. But uh, it's almost been a seamless transition in some respects. And slightly more, um, a bit more variety to their play than perhaps they before. Mm. Burnley will hopefully be at Villa on Saturday, Richard. They've, obviously, they, they take pride in their defensive stability. I think it's 21 goals uh, conceded in 15 games. Is that enough? No, as you say, Burnley are famed for, you know, being very solid, set up, you know, four four two, low block, difficult to play against. But they also posed a threat going forward, you know, in terms of, you know, Chris Wood and, you know, the talent from that wide. And when when Maxwell Cornet came in, we 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 did kind of see that kind of strategy coming to the fore in terms of being solid and then having that talisman. To, to kind of put the ball in the back of the net. You know, as he you know, scored five and ten. But as you say, without him, they're, they're looking very, very stale, very predictable and, and really struggling to to create chances. You know, maybe, I know 4 4 is worked well for them, but maybe a switch in formation, maybe to, uh, you know, maybe three up front, uh, three up top, sorry, with, um, with wingers higher. Maybe they can affect uh, affect their game a bit more. We all know Dwight McNeil's a good player, as is Goodmanson, but they, they can't seem to get in positions to either create chances for the forwards or create chances for themselves. You know, the last three games have, you know, two of the last three have been nil-nil. So it does seem to be a, a kind of steering of the ship in terms of, you know, their defensive displays. But, OK, they're struggling to score. And that defeat against Newcastle was, was hugely damaging. So 
look, they're, they're, they are in trouble. There's no no two ways about it. And they'll be looking to get Corne back as soon as possible because he does seem to be that talisman. When he's on the pitch, they do play well. You know, when when he's when when he's been on the pitch, Burnley as a team scored 11 goals in 569 minutes. When he's been away, they've only scored three in now 870. So you can see the difference in terms of his, not just his goal scoring, but him just being there and creating that galvanising effect for his teammates. So they're looking to get him back and, and say they need more from the likes of Vidra, the likes of McNeil, the likes of Goodmanson, if they are going to go, go up the table. Yeah, it's one of a galvanising presence, Glenn. Stephen Gerrard at Villa, I know this is, you know, we've known about his potential as a leader since he was a player, but he does look a natural manager, doesn't he? He does, doesn't he? It's, um, he's had a good start and obviously absolutely crucial. You, know, you, you come down, you've done very well at Rangers, but the, you know, there's always a slight view from, from south of the border that, well, there's only two teams, etc., etc. You know, he has done very well in difficult circumstances, certainly in a period of transition, which probably helped. But he's done well there. Obviously, he's uh, before that he had his period working in the other younger age groups at Liverpool. You know, listening and learning, having quite a big impact when you talk to those players. You know, for, from those groups uh, quite quickly. But then you come down and you know you may be Steven Gerrard, but if your first few results go poorly, then your caps and your record only takes you so far. Uh, as it happens, he's had an excellent start, and that then before people start believing in him, people think, oh, well, this guy obviously knows what he's talking about, so they put into practice what he's asking them to, and you build a bit of momentum. You know, Villa, Villa weren't a bad side. They had a couple of iffy results. But I remember they, they threw that one away at Wolves that they should have won. I mean, I thought Dean was unlucky to be fired in the first place. And there is a lot of evidence, you know, the LMA have done surveys and stuff like that, that usually there is a natural regression regardless of whether you change the manager, that a team has a bit of a bad run and then it picks up again. And you know, But I suspect that Villa's results have been better than they would have been had they not made the change, but maybe not that much better. But it certainly, you know, it's been a terrific start. It's very early days and we'll see what happens when you know, he gets some problems, when he starts losing, you know, losing a few matches. But at the moment, you'd have to say it looks very promising. Yeah. If we're sort of doing a Premier League retrospective, Stephen Gerrard will be one of the iconic players. Alongside him, I think, Sergio Aguero. We had his tearful farewell this week. This got me thinking about his status within the game. That goal against QPR, do you think that's the most iconic Premier League moment, Rich? It has to be, just in terms of winning the league, say the last kick of the game, last kick of the season, you know, against your city rivals, the whole circumstance around it, the drama, it was, it was an unbelievable moment. I mean, I, I remember, I guess it's one of those ones, you know, you remember where you were when, when it happened. I mean, I, I was at uni at the time and um, obviously at the, my leading sister to the other side of Manchester and, um, you know, I was enjoying a drink, thinking, OK, you know, we've, we've got the league in the bag. Um, a student a student having a drink, you sure? <laughs> just, just one, it was early. It's it only mid-afternoon, so, uh, you know, I was trying to be good. <laughs> and, as you say, when Dzeko when scored, you kind of, it's a bit ominous, isn't it, when he makes it 2-2. But I think if you wanted that chance to fall to anyone, Aguero would be the top of the list and, as you say, took the chance amazingly and... Yeah, so it was a fantastic moment, you know, one that is unforgettable. And as I say, an absolutely, you know, fantastic striker. You know, talk about marksmen, talk about, you know, people who are clinical. Guerrero is at the top of that list for, for, for many. You know, his goals to game record shows that. His record in big games show that. And none bigger than, than that moment against QPR, where when he was needed and counted upon, you know, you knew, as soon as he took that touch when he got the ball from Balotelli, I think everyone knew... He was going to bury it. Obviously, it was an emphatic moment, and yeah, he had a fantastic career at Manchester City. Yeah, in terms of him being City's best player, or who is City's best player? Do you think, Glenn, him or David Silva? Ooh, well, you're probably a bit of asking lots of people watch a lot. Yeah, watch City the last twenty years. Um, very hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're different sort of players. I mean, you could even make an argument for Vincent Company, I suppose, in terms of the impact on the club. It's <laughs> without sitting on the fence it's teams that win matches with the exception of Maradona in 86 it's teams that win and you need a Silva and you need an Aguero you need a person to provide the passes and a person to convert them so it's very hard to, you know, with the quality of the service you know, 
a lot of players would have scored quite a lot of goals, probably not as many goals. Equally, you know, we were finishing like that. A lot of people would create a lot of goals. It's, it's very, it's very, very hard to sell. I mean, I think City were blessed, you know, to have them both. We're we're very lucky in the Premier League to to, to watch them both. It's a bit like the Ronaldo Messi argument in some respects. You know, my my view is no one arguing who's better. Appreciate the fact you've got them. Yeah, same with you know who's better. Yeah, the Salah or Henri sort of thing. I mean, it's great to have so many good players playing here. And enjoy it while you can, because as we found out with Aguero, you, you never know when these careers will finish. Yeah. What about the the implications of that early retirement? Since apparently it was linked to to heart issues, you know, we had that you know, awful scene with with Lindelof as well, didn't we, last weekend, which was worrying. Hopefully, um, everything's worked out there. Does that sort of reinforce the need for player welfare? A hundred percent. I think kind of education around heart issues in, in football um is, is improving in terms of you know having the facilities there you know players taking more precautions with their health but um as, as, as we say you know is there's that need for for more stringent checks on a more regular basis because we, we are seeing a, a lot of it now quite a few players have you know breathing issues or, or heart issues you know for, for one reason or, or, or another you know is there a case or is there a need for for more stringent testing in, in that regard and as you say that duty of care not just looking at their kind of physical nature whether they're able to play football but as you say the heart and, and, and things like that as well because you know, for, for someone to retire, you know, still relatively young, still had a few years left in him. And as you say, he's just joined Barcelona. He still had a lot a lot to give. So it's always gutting and painful to have it taken away from you. So, yeah, I, I think I think we will see moving forward, you know, calls for more stringent testing in, in that respect, because we are seeing more of it. I say creep into the game, but it's not creeping, as you say. It's, it's happening on a regular basis, probably hearing about one, at least one a week now of players having to, leave the field for breathing issues or heart issues and things like that. So, yeah, it'll be, it'll be great to see that, just to put the players... There's obviously so much going on, obviously, with COVID and things like that. You know, that is another another aspect of it. So uh, I, I think there should be calls for, for more students and testing in that regard as well. It is, it is one of those things. It's a bit like... Wait, it's one of those things you're not quite sure whether... Is there more of it happening or is there more awareness of it, therefore more stories being picked up? It's a bit like the you know, dog bites man story. Suddenly you get these spells in the papers where there's dogs attacking people all the time and then it just drops off the news. It doesn't mean dogs aren't attacking people anymore, it just becomes less newsworthy. So it's hard to tell whether there, there, there are more instances like this or whether there's just more awareness or whether they're just being picked up more because there is a bit more testing going on, there is a bit more checking going on. Players are now extremely valuable commodities, so it makes sense for clubs to you know, monitor them as close as possible. There's more awareness of what could go wrong. There's also the other issue of... Yeah, but then, again, logically, the game is faster than it's ever been. The games are probably as, certainly as, as packed in as they've ever been. I'm not sure there's necessarily more games, but pitches are better, boots are better. Yeah, people are running faster. They're doing more. They're doing not not just running further. They're doing more high intensity running. The game's much more physical. In some respects, the breaks from injury are shorter because medical sciences improve, so they get players back on the pitch much quicker than they used to. It would make sense to feel that the bodies probably are being pushed further than they've ever been. We don't know. Yeah, I'm not involved in a, in a club. What players may be taking in terms of supplements and medical supplements, and certainly other sports are big issues with stuff that players are taking outside what we might regard as normal nutrition. And that could have an impact. I mean, cycling would be the obvious case, but we're going a whole new area there. So there's lots of arguments. You know, is it is it getting worse? I'm, logic would suggest there probably are more incidents, but without more research, it's hard to pin down. And you should earn the side of the course. I mean, Dan Matthews, a piece in the mail the other day, a lot of players when they're told, well, this is a bit of a problem, they, you know, I mean, Aguero's obviously very upset to retire, but it's a bit easier to retire at 34 when you've got a heart condition, when you've achieved such a fantastic career as he has, than when you're 22 and it's all ahead of you. Um, you know, like James Taylor, the cricketer, had to do and so on. I mean, that, uh, yeah, or, yeah, but uh, here in the back, I said, oh, obviously, um, Mwamba was still a relatively young player, but when you've been that close to dying, you obviously stopped playing. So when you've just been told, you know, this test shows that you might have a, you know, a slightly dodgy rhythm, you're going, to have, well, I feel fine, you know, I don't want to quit my career. So it's hard to tell. I mean, yeah, we've been here before, you know, there are too many matches, there's too high intensity, the players don't give them a break, plus there's all the mental side of it, but uh, no one wants to play less, do they? No, but I suppose this is all 
does tie in with the, the, the you know the COVID situation. The the advice clubs are apparently getting is that this will prove a a short and sharp wave. However, the one thing that really struck me and actually shocked me, to be honest, without sounding too much like your maiden aunt, the EFL said that 25% of their players don't intend to get vaccinated. What do you make of that, Richard? It, it did shock me, to be fair. I know there's been a lot of, you know, I think we've even done pieces in The Athletic about it in terms of players being wary of putting you know, the vaccine in their body and, and the reasons why they're against it and, and, and things like that. But it did shock me. I mean, that's, that's such a high number who, who say that they're not getting or, or don't intend to be vaccinated, considering, say, so we've been in this for 18 months or so now, almost two years. We've seen the toll, death toll, the illness toll, and the impact it's had on society, you know, not not, not just football. So, especially where, you say, without getting too much into it, where okay, we're lucky in, in our society where we, we have a choice of getting the vaccine, it's readily available. But, you know, in other, place, in other places in the world where, you know, they don't even have access to it. And it's something that is not just keeping, you know, you safe, but, but you know, everyone else as well, people around you. It, it, it did shock me from, from that respect in terms of, you know, looking beyond football in terms of, you know, protecting those around you. As you say, the education has been there. I'm sure they would have had various talks from not just the clubs, but various medical professionals as well. I guess, you know, from their perspective, maybe they've either had it themselves or seen other players have it and maybe they're thinking it's, it's not that serious. And, you know, maybe they live within a, a certain bubble, you know, away a away from reality and the rest of society that's making them think that way. But, um, of course, look, it's a personal choice, but considering how the last two years have gone, it's, it's very, say, disappointing that they're not even considering getting it. And what the implications will be moving forward. I, I was surprised, I must admit, it was that high. I, I think this is on the clubs, I think this is on the leagues. The um, When you look at, I mean, there are some clubs, Wolves, 100%, uh, Liverpool, pretty much all vaccinated. Clearly, some clubs have made an effort to really get into their players and say, look, this is this is the science, they've brought people in, this is the other logic, you know, and talk for it. I mean, as I say, I was going to Ipswich, Sunderland the weekend, Sunderland got 97%. So basically, it's one player, obviously, hasn't been jabbed. They lost a lot of games last year. You know, a big period which I think affected their promotion push and they've clearly made a real effort this year to say right we're going to make sure everyone's vaccinated we're not if we miss games it's not going to be our fault you know because uh, you're also missing training you're having players absent players unavailable I mean, and in terms of leagues the NBA where there's much there's more vaccine resistance in the stations over here the NBA have 97% players vaccinated it's mandatory for the referees, mandatory for uh, the staffers, coaching staff. If, you, if you're not vaccinated, you have to... There's so many hoops to go through. Daily testing, you can't eat with the other players. You have to wear masks pretty much everywhere. Your locker's in a different area. Yeah, it's, life has become quite difficult if you're not vaccinated in the NBA. Yeah, the NFL has very strong stuff as well for people who aren't vaccinated. So, yeah, you can't even play. Yeah, some cases players aren't getting paid. Some cases they can't play matches yeah, in certain areas. Uh, Germany, Bayern, you know, I think they're going to stop paying Kimmich's wages until he got vaccinated because he kept missing so many games. Uh, so I think we haven't been anywhere near firm enough in terms of the league as a whole and clubs individually here. It is a personal choice, but when you're dealing in a situation where players are living so close together, so cheek by jowl, you're going to, you're going to get a case you, it's going to spread throughout the dressing room quite quickly. And vaccinated players obviously can still catch it, and whilst they may not be seriously ill, it doesn't mean they can't play, they're isolated. So you lose those players as a club. So I'm surprised the clubs haven't been more proactive. And there is the mental aspect to it too. I mean, look at, you know, Chelsea women last night, you know, you know Emma say, saying the, the club were clearly, you know, the players have been very much affected by the consequences of positive tests and the, the thought they might be stuck in Germany or be unable to go home during the, during the Christmas break to see their families. Hmm. Begs the question, doesn't it? Should unvaccinated players be prevented from playing? What do you think? It's happening in some places in the States. In certain areas, and they're not allowed in the arenas because the the uh, you're not allowed in an arena of a certain size if you're not vaccinated. And of course, they're playing indoors in basketball. I would say just make life difficult for them. I wouldn't necessarily say you can't play, but you should be the the, the sensible option should be to get jabbed. Yeah, I I, I I agree with Glenn as well. I think you say of course you can't force anyone to do it, but as you say, you have to make it difficult for them. And 
try and get them to understand the, the consequences if they don't know by now I mean you know it's, it's bizarre really um, to say you look at the kind of Kimmich situation that he was very vehemently against it and you know unfortunately for him you know he's, he's had health issues as a result and he might not get paid so as I say I don't mandatory I don't think it's the way to go but as you say as Glenn's listed all those other leagues uh, across the world which have had a more kind of stringent process maybe we need to bring that here because as you say you're not just affecting yourself is is everyone around you and as you say the squads being in such close proximity to each other it does uh, you know create a breakout and as you say missing games teams are missing games as a result and it, it, it has a snowball effect so it just seems baffling why with everything that's gone on why you just why you wouldn't why you wouldn't want to just protect yourself and and the, your, your, you know your teammates your friends those around you your loved ones your family it seems a bit bizarre really but um yeah i think more more needs to be done as you say can't force them but it's their way of making it a bit more uncomfortable perhaps i, I don't know yeah absolutely this isn't a political point but as someone once said this is about education 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 i have to say I find the PFA a self-centred, opaque organisation, but with players' welfare on the line, they've got to step up and take the lead, alongside the leagues and other governing bodies, in pushing the case for vaccination as hard as they can. The rates are worryingly low, and I tend to agree with Jurgen Klopp, who says it's a question of solidarity, loyalty and togetherness. We should need no reminding that football doesn't exist in a bubble. In the meantime, thanks to Richard and Glenn for their insight. Thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. And please, stay safe out there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.